0: From the grape to the glass, the wine-making and wine-enjoying process is packed with physics from beginning to end. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and on today's podcast, we're taking our own little wine tour with three science-soaked stops. From the dynamics of wine swirling, to how light can help you decide when to harvest the grapes, to just what's going on with those tears that form on the side of your glass, we'll cover it all. Because hey, it's physics o'clock somewhere. First up, the perfect swirl.
1: In fact, we, we discover what uh, a lot of uh, wine enthusiasts know already, is that if you shake your glass, then uh, you change the chemical composition of your wine.
0: Martino Roclari is an expert on oinodynamics, the physics of wine swirling. As a graduate student at the École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne, he studied the standing wave patterns that can be created in your glass, an important part of any wine taster's experience.
1: You are uh, increasing the exchange of uh, chemicals between the wine and the atmosphere in both ways. So uh, some particles of wine get uh, uh, easily oxidized and then some uh, other molecules of wine get evaporated.
0: Evaporating certain components of the wine and allowing others to become oxidized. These things are known to have an effect on how it tastes, and that's why you always see winos swirling away. But depending on a few key parameters, the shape of that swirl will take on different forms. You could form a perfect wave with a single crest that smoothly travels all the way around the glass, or you could get more complicated patterns with multiple crests. Reclari and his collaborators found that the whole range of behaviors can be described with just three dimensionless numbers that relate the diameter of the glass to the height of the wine, the swirling frequency and the path that your hand takes to impart that circular motion.
1: In in fact, if you change those uh, dimensionless parameters, then you can have all this spectrum of different shape of waves, depending on where you are according to the, the shaking frequencies of the container.
0: The group found stable wave patterns with one, two, three, even 4 peaks, as well as conditions where the wave breaks and sloshes out of control. What makes these numbers really special, though, is that dimensionless part, because if you hold them constant, you can create your favorite wave shape in a container of any size. The scale doesn't matter. For Reclari, that was very useful, because Merlot was never the intended target of the study in the first place.
1: At the beginning, we were not studying wine, we were studying uh, the bioreactors. So there is a, a lot of interest in building large-scale containers which are shaped uh, using the same motion as the glass of wine to cultivate bioengineered cells that can produce uh, useful proteins.
0: Just like the wine, the cells need to be mixed to have the right amount of exchange with the atmosphere.
1: So they need uh, oxygen from the atmosphere and they need to evacuate the CO2 they produce and they need to be fed so this is why it's very useful to to shake them to mix them the cells are very fragile. So if we shake them too hard, they will die. So this kind of motion is very gentle. It, it seems to be better for, for cells.
0: So where does the wine swirling come in?
1: One day we said, oh, maybe no one is really cares about this bioreactor apart from the people building bioreactors. And if we want to address a very large area, part of the, of the physical community, it's better to talk about something more popular and then wine came up and uh, in fact it was a very good choice.
0: (laughs) Almost too good. Despite its far-reaching applications, the wine swirling paper was picked up in the press as a rather fluffy piece of science, even being nominated for an Ig Nobel Prize in 2012. But Riclari isn't shaken at all by the work's popular appeal.
1: Being laughed at uh, for a moment because it seems that what we do is uh, is just we want to drink wine and then we do a research on wine is uh, it's not a big problem because thanks to that, we can achieve a much broader uh, audience. So why not? It was uh, <laughs> not so bad, in fact.
0: <laughs> not so bad at all. For this next stop on our Physics of Wine tour, we're heading out of the tasting room and into the field to chat with winemaker Matthew Ron, co-owner of Two Mountain Winery in Washington's Yakima Valley. Now is just about the time when new buds and leaves are starting to open up on the vines, and in a little while, new grapes will appear and ripen over the summer. During that time, lots of things—the amount of rain, the amount of sun, the temperature— affect the flavor development of the fruit, but in general, the grapes get sweeter over time. So one big question is, how do you know when they're ready to harvest? When are they done? It turns out that light can help winemakers answer that question.
2: We use the refractometer to measure the level of sugar within the grapes, which helps with harvest decisions.
0: The refractometer measures how light is bent, or refracted, as it passes through juice from the grapes you want to test. If you put a straw into a glass of water and look down at it from above, you'll notice that the straw appears to bend where it passes through the surface. That happens because the speed of light is a little bit slower in water than it is in air, and when the photons traveling from one medium to the other abruptly change speed, they also change their direction a little bit. How much they change direction depends on the wavelength of the light, sunlight in the visible range in this case, and the difference between air and water in a property called index of refraction. Grape juice is primarily made up of water and sugar, but the exact proportion changes the density of the juice as well as the index of refraction. So measuring how much the light bends can tell you how much sugar is in the grapes on the vine at any given time.
2: So you put a little bit of the juice on the lens of the refractometer, and there's a scale and size. Um, it looks very much like a kaleidoscope. And you look through, you look through the eyepiece, and you, you can see where the measurement is, the line of measurement within the, the scale on the refractometer that shows you basically either has 0% sugar in there or, or 0 bricks or, you know, 30 bricks, depending on how high your scale goes. And a degree bricks is the level of sugar within the juice that we use.
0: The unit is named after Adolf Bricks, a 19th century mathematician who developed a scale for this correlation between the index of refraction of fruit juice and its sugar content. Handheld refractometers like the one described here use the critical angle principle. At one end of the tube, light passes through the juice, where it's bent a little bit, and then through a prism, where it's bent again. Some of those rays are bent completely away from the instrument, so when you look through the eyepiece at the other end of the tube, you'll see that part of the field of view is in shadow. The location of the boundary between the light and dark regions can be compared to the brick scale to find the sugar content of the juice, and that can help with harvest decisions.
2: It gives us some some base information. It gives us some, we kind of have parameters that we like to shoot for based off of certain varieties and, and certain styles of wines. You know, for instance, table grapes are, say, 19 degrees bricks. So table grapes, I mean like what you'd buy in the store to eat. Rainier cherries are about 17 degrees bricks. With wine grapes, we're looking for grapes to be somewhere between, say, 21 and 26 degree bricks, depending on what type of wine you're making. You know, Riesling or Gewürztraminer or something that's, you know, it's a little bit more aromatic, a little bit, you know, quite a bit fruitier, um, tends to be a little bit less sugar. in it. We don't mind having the bricks be a little bit lower. Um, on the bigger reds, we like to have a slightly higher number, somewhere probably between 24 and 26 degree bricks, because that one leads to a little bit more alcohol, but also we're starting to get into that kind of later development of, of flavor profile. So it's a, good, it's a good measurement tool. I mean, it's not the end-all be-all, it's not the thing that we base harvest decisions exclusively on, but it's, it's definitely a good tool to see where things are, to see the development process of, of what's going on.
0: Physics for the win! For the final stop on our tour, we're heading back inside to learn about another familiar phenomenon.
3: Most people who drink wine have seen the weird drops that form around the side of the glass. Traditionally, they're called tears or legs of wine.
0: Dan Quinn, now a postdoctoral scholar at Stanford University, heard an explanation for the phenomenon in a class as a graduate student and wanted a better way to visualize it.
4: All the examples they gave were static images, whereas it sounded like what they were describing was more of a dynamic process. That's when I decided, well, I want to videotape this. But even then, it still doesn't look that much different because it's still so slow. So it wasn't really until I sped up the footage that you could really see how dynamic the process was. And I was really blown away to see that.
0: Lots of people were blown away to see that. Quinn's video, which combines time-lapse footage with clear explanations and a compelling soundtrack, has been viewed over 100,000 times on YouTube.
3: What most people don't realize is that If you watch patiently, these drops are actually moving around. They're falling, forming, and refalling over and over and over again.
0: The process hinges on two key properties of alcohol, which, after water, is the biggest component of wine. It's got a lower surface tension than water, and it evaporates more easily. Surface tension is a cohesive property that varies between different liquids. It's what pulls water droplets into spheres and why some insects can skitter across the surface of a pond. A solution of water and alcohol, i.e. wine, has a particular surface tension, but because alcohol will evaporate more easily given a chance, that surface tension isn't necessarily even everywhere. It can be different on the side of the glass than on the rest of the liquid surface.
3: Alright, so you swirl some wine onto the side of a glass. And at first you might think this wine would just slip down the sides back in with the rest of the glass. But take a closer look. The alcohol will evaporate the fastest up at the top where the wine is thinnest. That means that compared to the rest of the wine, the wine at the top is actually less alcoholic and therefore has a higher surface tension.
0: Because the wine on the glass has a higher surface tension, it pulls on the wine below it, enough to drag it up the side. This keeps happening until enough wine has been gathered up there that it can't be supported, and it slides back down as a droplet. Quinn offers this analogy.
3: Now imagine an escalator with a wall at the top, so that the people just start bunching up with no place to go. And eventually, a critical number of people builds up to form a ball, and the ball rolls back down, taking all the people with it.
0: On the two-dimensional surface of the wine glass, lots of drops form and roll back down, and then wine is drawn back up and more drops form and so on in a pattern that becomes a mesmerizing dance in Quinn's time-lapse video. But why make a video like this? And for that matter, why examine and share the physics of everyday phenomena at all?
4: Sometimes people think that they're going to be too complicated. They won't be able to understand. So they they hear that there's a scientific explanation, but they think, oh, well, that's beyond me. I can't get it. But I hope that Something like the wine video shows people that there are complicated scientific explanations that everyone can understand, even though they're complicated. And I think it really makes you appreciate just how powerful science can be and how applicable it is to the world around you, even stuff right in front of you that's been there the whole time. I think it's not as intangible as people often think it is.
0: As Richard Feynman said at the conclusion of one of his lectures,
4: But it is true
2: that if you look at a glass of wine closely enough, you will see the entire universe.
0: There's something to think about at your next dinner party. And that brings us to the end of our little physics wine tour. For the rest of that Feynman quote and more information on the sciencey side of wine, visit our website at physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and here's to you for listening to the Physics Central podcast.